Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Sam Bendet of the Center for Naval Analyses with an update on Russia's war on Ukraine and Byron Callen uh, of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners uh, with a look at the week ahead. But first, joining us is Dr. David Asher, a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, one of the world's leading experts on sanctions, uh, having been one of the architects of the Bush administration's targeting of Banco Delta Asia in Macau that proved so devastating, it prompted China and Russia to pressure North Korea to uh, denuclearization talks and also served uh, in the Obama administration to craft sanctions uh, designed to destroy the financial, the ample financial capabilities of ISIS. David, it's always a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. I will, the pleasure is mine. Thank you for having me. Uh, before we get started, our program today is sponsored by HII. HII is the designer and operator of the U.S. Navy's live virtual constructive training enterprise, the largest LVC enterprise in the U.S. Department of Defense, HII delivering hard stuff done right. Uh, And Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors uh, our air uh, coverage. David, thanks very much uh, again uh, for joining us. It's been almost a year since Russia uh, launched its war uh, against Ukraine, and uh, over the year, the United States and its allies and partners uh, worldwide have imposed, uh, you know, have A, given uh, extraordinary military aid. Uh, to Ukraine, allowing the country to fight uh, and win back uh, territory. Uh, it's also imposed unprecedented uh, economic sanctions uh, against uh, Moscow. And yet, trade uh, continues, as we know, unless sanctions are uh, continuously tightened, uh, the subject of the sanctions, uh, you know, get used to them and, and figure out means to circumvent them. How, how are the sanctions working at this point one year into this war? Well, I mean, I think they're sort of in the middle of being effective, but the problem is uh, it's it, 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 the scale and scope of the sanctions is vast. The uh, number of targets is vaster than anything we've ever attempted, but the um, verification and compliance was something we learned about in arms control, where you watch all the missile silos and sites to make sure they're actually not uh, uh, operating or that the, the rules of the treaties related to uh, the arms control of universe are being followed. That type of compliance on sanctions has been weak to, and ineffective at best. Uh, so we got a very strong declarative policy on energy, it's having some significant bite. The Europeans have taken the lead. They've just expanded their energy sanctions to now include fuel. So uh, refined petroleum products are now being banned as of just uh, uh, yesterday. Um, that will have a substantial uh, monetary impact on Russia. But again, it's all about what, what, what the, the, the state of the Putin palace economy really is in my mind. And that's where I think we've been lacking. We had a very ambitious rollout of sanctions against Putin and his cronies. And uh, those sanctions uh, specifically are, are leaking, you know, uh, badly. And, 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 and we're, we're, just, we're just not affecting the behavior 
um, of, 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 of Putin and his inner sanctum enough. And the macro economy is not the economy of the palace economy of Vladimir Putin. Those people live a different life. They're not hurting. Well, um, so what are some of the specific things, um, democracies uh, and the allies and partners that are with us in this endeavor uh, need to be doing in order to be able to sharpen that, uh, that punch? Well, I think we need to try to establish a number of indicators that uh, we try to achieve. I mean, this is something when we worked on the Iran sanctions, which I advised on uh, during the Trump administration and before that under Obama, um, you know, we were out to sink the, especially under Trump, the, the Iranian economy. We wanted to create inflation. We wanted to uh, uh, make it extremely difficult for them to buy key components, uh, uh, including through third parties. So we had a huge sanctions enforcement and export control enforcement regime in place with countries all over the world. It was basically a gauntlet and everything was organized into a matrix of effects that we were trying to have. I don't see that level of central centralization. I see that level of ambition. Um, but again, Putin's not quaking his boots. Ne- neither are his uh, cronies. And the military is facing challenges. Um, but we could, if we were more effective, I think we could break the back of their supply chains. And that's something that we, we, we should aim to do. And that's going to require putting pressure on countries like China, and to some extent, India, but especially China. And then after that, you've got uh, places which are porous at best, uh, uh, maybe much worse than that, like Turkey. And then Cyprus is uh, is basically a free crime zone for the Russian oligarchs to get their money anywhere they want in the world. So we could be taking a number of actions, such as imposing Section 311 of the USA Patriot Act, which is a regulation against Russia itself. Now that this, now that the Europeans have cut back their natural gas imports so much from Russia, which they have um, successfully. It's a miracle um, without freezing to death. Uh, they've been lucky by the weather conditions. The, um, there's an opportunity to consider doing to a Russia we did against Iran, which is imposing this financial cutoff on their ability to settle trade in dollars and bank in dollars globally uh, by imposing this thing called Section 311 of the Patriot Act, which is what we used against the bank in Macau that put the North Korean right. government into a tailspin. That was used against Iran in 2019, and it put the Iranian regime into a tailspin, and there did, as it did the, uh, affect their macro economy. We have not used that weapon yet, and I think it's high time to consider it. Uh, so how do we do this, and how do we work with our allies and partners uh, right to bring them along in this, in this process, right? I mean, the Trump administration was talking about um, you know, sanctioning our allies, which is always a problematic thing to do. You want them to come along with us. This administration has done a very, very good job in, for example, clearing the export controls uh, to allow the British to open the door on exports. And then we follow them, giving giving the opportunity for different nations to lead at different times. Yeah, what we did with uh, Iran, for example, is we, we, we cut all sorts of waivers that have existed uh, uh, through previous sanctions efforts, which exist right now with the Europeans, for example, on natural gas imports. We basically um, more or less told them that, that they want to trade with, um, if they someone like the Europeans want to trade with Iran, they're not going to do it in dollars. Um, by cutting off the dollar, which was done through this imposition of this Patriot Act, which uh, it basically just says you can't settle your trade in dollars using U.S. banks as intermediaries. By doing that, uh, and doing a lot of outreach to the Europeans about why 
the Iranian nuclear weapons in the future were going to be pointed at Europe first and foremost, not the United States. Um, and convincing them, we managed to put together a real joint gauntlet. Now, Europe is much more supportive and much more aggressive, including on sanctions than we are even in some ways, um, certainly compared to Iran. But we, we, we just have to look at the effects that we're having. I mean, again, economically, the IMF is predicting Russia's economy is going to grow by 0.4%, I believe, this year. Okay, that's not a good sign of sanctions having an effect. You understand? I mean, right. England's going to go into a deep uh, recession, practically depression, if they're not already in one, according to the IMF. But the IMF's latest report from last week predicts that uh, Russia will be doing just fine. Th that's not the type of me metric you want to see. We want to see uh, the Russian central bank having to print money to because they can't afford their trade, uh, to finance their trade, except through um, printing money. Uh, that'll create inflation. That will create macroeconomic shock effects that'll send people into the streets in Russia. That will have an effect of diverting attention for Putin. Okay, so you got to really think about effects-based operations and sanctions as in other aspects of military uh, affairs. And um, I do believe that we have the underlying framework in place to do this. Um, it's just a question of task organization. There needs to be someone at the National Security Council whose job is to make Putin's life uh, a, a bit of a living uh, HE double toothpicks, um, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that, that, and also to combine this with a high degree of psychological operations. And indeed, I would say much more clear uh, sabotage efforts. And these can be overt, they can be covert. But um, one thing that we did against the Soviet Union, which under Ronald Reagan, which is quite successful, was to engage in uh, operations against their military supply chains. I'm sure we're doing some things like this, but again, we should be all out, uh, including uh, trying to coerce the Chinese to cooperate so they don't just become the main source of electronics for the Russian military, which they are right now, um, uh, and, and imply coercive tools against China, i.e. sanctions. We have very few sanctions against China. If there's a Russian uh, bank that's clearing trade uh, in military items to Chinese banks, we should consider sanctioning that Chinese bank for its activities. We should be sanctioning the Chinese companies as providing uh, uh, critical electronic support. All this, uh, and, this, and the Chinese aren't our friends, so we're not talking about sanctioning the Europeans here. I'm saying that with the Europeans in tandem, we're going to need to have greater bite at the apple. Otherwise, we're going to face a situation where this war drags on in a way that in, will play to Putin's favor ultimately. What's uh, the time scale, right? If we do these uh, sanctions right, how fast uh, do they take effect uh, in your view? Uh, and very quickly, because we're running short on time. Yeah. Is I there mean, a danger of breaking the dollar as, right? Because no. I mean, the concern is you'll break the dollar, right? People. No, I'm not at all concerned about the dollar's primacy right now at all. I think we're, we're at a point now where um, we should be concerned about the fact that we have an opportunity in this winter time that's still uh, for the next few months to dramatically up the pressure on Putin. And by doing so, we may be able to coerce him into a situation where he will have to negotiate something that he certainly doesn't want to do um, and that would be debilitating to him. Uh, I think that the economic levers are there. Uh, the vulnerability is there. And we, we just need to up our game here and apply a much more an Iran-like strategy to Russia. That's my simple conclusion. And just to follow up, uh, David, uh, do you think that when it comes to uh, the Chinese, right? I mean, you said microelectronics are coming from the United States. Does this balloon incident sort of give us an opportunity to be able to put 
some of these sanctions in place? Yeah, I mean, China's importing microelectronics from the U.S. to export them to Russia. Uh, the balloon thing definitely opens the door to start to do something which we should have done years ago, which is sanction China's space, missile, nuclear, biological, chemical weapons programs. They are massive. They have huge civil military footprints, including large presences in the United States. China's Academy of Engineering and Physics, which is the center of their nuclear weapons program, has been recently outed in the Wall Street Journal uh, for buying uh, Intel uh, and other uh, components for graphic processing units that are going into nuclear weapon-related capabilities and missiles. I mean, uh, we've done nothing as a country to constrain China's access uh, uh, for its weapons of mass destruction programs to our our territory, other than export controls, which have been thinly enforced and uh, frequently don't have the, the the bite to work. And uh, so it's time we actually use financial sanctions like we used against Iran, North Korea, Venezuela, against China's weapons of mass destruction program, something we did used to have back in the 70s, but we don't have uh, right. anymore. So that's this is a, the ballooning incident is an opportunity um, to, to start to take a hard edge uh, policy against China's uh, leading edge of weapons targeting our country. David, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks very much. Would like to get these uh, uh, updates from you uh, more regularly. Always an honor and pleasure. Thanks so much for joining Thanks. us. Thanks. Same here. We appreciate it. Bye-bye. And joining us now is Sam Bendet of the Center for Naval Analyses. He's also a fellow at the Center for a New American Security. Uh, he is uh, one of the world's leading experts on the Russian military, uh, along with the great team there at CNA, uh, and also on unmanned systems around the world. Sam, always a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, all right. So give us an update uh, on the war uh, and how it's going, as well as uh, on the marker uh, unmanned ground vehicle. We talked uh, last week that it was going to be deployed, but now uh, to uh, the fight, whereas now we have a little, a few more details. Walk us through. The fighting around Bakhmut area and the Donbas is intensifying. Uh, Russians and the Wagner mercenaries are throwing a lot of soldiers at the Ukrainians. They're trying to grind away at the Ukrainian defenses. And there's indication um, that in some parts of that front, um, Russian pressure is having an effect. What kind of effect is, is hard to determine. Both sides are are stating that they're basically sticking to their positions, but Russians continue to throw soldiers at the Ukrainians. And uh, these tactics, again, are having an effect. There's a lot of fighting going on right now in Vugladar, and a lot has been written about this small town. Uh, in fact, this, this very small mining town of less than 20,000 people really kind of is now in the um, front lines of major uh, news services for those who are interested in this war, because Vugladar is located basically at the intersection of where Donbas region ends and where um, Kherson region controlled by Russians begins. And so this is a very important point for Russia to defend, because if Ukrainians were to launch an attack to uh, break up this land bridge that connects Russia proper to Crimea via uh, these territories, it would spell a lot of trouble for the Russians. And so uh, Russian soldiers and the Russian military is investing a lot of resources in um, attacking Vugladar area, trying to probe Ukrainian defenses, uh, trying to see if uh, Ukraine is capable of defending both the Donbas and other regions. And that's where a lot of estimates basically um, uh, overlap here in, in the sense that 
it's not clear why Russians are trying to expend so many resources on taking Vugladar. It is a small town. Some actually say that uh, they are trying to draw Ukrainians away from Donbass and have Ukrainians dedicate resources to defending a small town in preparation for Russian attack elsewhere. Other estimates are basically saying that Russians are trying to attack along the entire front that stretches from uh, northern Donbass all the way uh, to the southern Kherson. But uh, Vugadar is now another major area where heavy fighting is taking place and Russian military and Wagner and other forces are spending a lot of resources trying to pressure Ukrainians there as well. As far as the marker on ground vehicle, uh, on crude ground vehicle system, uh, Dmitry Rogozin, who is apparently in charge of testing of this vehicle in the Donbass, stated earlier that they were going to receive it. He posted on his Telegram channel the reception of two of the four marker UGVs that will be deployed. So there's a video of these uh, vehicles getting offloaded from, uh, from a truck. He claimed that his forces will start working on uploading image recognition software on the markers so that these vehicles can recognize NATO and Ukrainian vehicles. He was also talking about installing anti-tank systems and weapons on the marker. Uh, it's not clear where that testing will take place. Uh, he also earlier posted that he built a series of fortified locations where um, Russian specialists and uh, drone and UGV operators can work in safety and security close to the front, but uh, without being threatened by Ukrainian attacks. So it is possible that some of that testing may actually take place in those hardened facilities, or perhaps it could take place outside. It's not exactly clear. Two more UGVs are supposed to arrive, according to Rogozin. And uh, he recently actually posted that he's back to the front. He was injured in the Ukrainian strike. Uh, he was apparently um, staying away from the actual fighting. And now he's back wearing a military uniform and, uh, you know, uh, looking uh, very much the soldier he wants the people to believe that he is. Um, let me uh, take you to uh, the new uh, factory uh, that uh, Iran and Russia are setting up. Tell us about it. What do we know and what is uh, what are its capacities? Well, according to Western intelligence estimates, Russia and Iran are trying to develop a massive factory to manufacture up to 6,000 drones. And the factory is supposedly going to be in the Yelabuga area, uh, uh, several hundred miles east of Moscow in the Tatarstan region, so in Russia's heartland. And apparently, this particular factory will manufacture a version of the Shahed 136, but with a different motor. And this could be either a more powerful motor or a quieter motor. And uh, there were a lot of discussions about Shahed slash Gerayim 2, which is how it flies under the Russian name, being a very loud UAV. So replacing the motor, making it quieter, is going to present a lot of, a lot of difficulties for Ukrainian air defenses. And apparently will make this drone more powerful. Uh, the deal is part of larger Russian-Iranian deal for manufacturing of UAVs. Russia, of course, is transferring money and some of the Western equipment it captured to Iran in return for that. Both Russia and Iran are denying it. In fact, just this morning, Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs and um, uh, Russian Kremlin spokesman said that 
Russia doesn't need Iran to develop its military UAVs, that all the UAVs that Russia is going to use are basically domestic and will be manufactured by uh, Russians proper. So a lot of interesting discussions, but the announcement about this factory in Yelabaga is aligned with the long-term cooperation between Russia and Iran in military transfer and the military cooperation that both countries have launched years ago. Um, let me ask you uh, about chips. Rusi, the Royal United Services Institute, uh, said that almost every single Russian weapon system, uh, and indeed many Chinese weapon systems, contain uh, Western uh, chips. Uh, allies have been trying to curtail this, uh, but that Russia and China both get them through front companies around the world. Are we making any progress in slowing the flow of chip technology to the Russians or to the Iranians, for that matter, because we're apparently finding Western chips in their equipment as well? I believe so. What we're finding in uh, military uh, systems are civilian technologies, and these are civilian and dual-use technologies. They are present everywhere. Um, they are sold everywhere. They could be acquired and purchased everywhere. So it's very difficult to actually stem the flow of strictly commercial technologies, which are now getting adopted for military uh, means by the Russians, by the Iranians. And this is the crux of the difficulty in trying to sanction something like that. Uh, if this was a strictly military application, it would be one set of problems, but a strictly civilian technology that again could be purchased in online marketplaces and physical marketplaces through a variety of means is more difficult to interdict. And of course, uh, US Treasury Department and uh, US State Department are working very hard in trying to find ways to prevent the flow of these technologies to Russia without necessarily restricting right. the commercial flows as well. But uh, Russia has proven resilient in finding partners. It's not just China and India and other countries. Uh, it's also, for example, Turkey that has emerged another uh, as, as another significant uh, country right. that enables Russian acquisition of all kinds of technologies. There was uh, a big uh, throwdown uh, among uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin of the Wagner uh, Group, uh, Igor Gurkin uh, of uh, the Donetsk uh, or a prominent Donetsk figure, otherwise known as Igor uh, Strelkov, uh, obviously implicated in the Malaysian airline uh, shoot down in, in 2014. Kind of, you know, and some people have said, oh, you know, Putin is unsteady because of these guys. How do you answer that question? Uh, is Vladimir Putin going anywhere and is Dmitry Prigozhin, excuse me, uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, uh, you know, moving him out of the way anytime soon. It is unlikely that Putin is going anywhere. He's using a lot of uh, allies. He's using a lot of infrastructures, uh, military and civilian organizations that were set up recently as a way to extend and promote his influence. So Yevgeny Prigozhin obviously serves at the behest of the Kremlin. He is a very useful tool for the Kremlin. Um, his forces can operate not just in Ukraine, but also in Africa and other parts of the world. And recently, he was actually called on the red carpet. He was called uh, to meet with Vladimir Putin, where he was probably chastised for some of his more outspoken statements and his more outspoken critique of the Ministry of, of Defense. And um, it wasn't just Evgeny Prigozhin who was kind of chastised and, chastised and put into place. Ramzan Kadyrov, leader of Chechnya, who was also outspoken critic of the MOD, was also kind of put in his place, was actually given a promotion. So Vladimir Putin is also apt at rewarding his allies as well as keeping them close. Now, Strelkov is a very interesting figure. He is not as prominent and prevalent in 
uh, Russian fight in the Donbass right now. Yevgeny Prigozhin claims credit for not only actually um, supplying forces and uh, supplies to the front, but he claims even credit for some of the advances and some of the fighting that is taking place. Just recently, he flew on a Su-24 aircraft, uh, basically demonstrating his um, military credentials, much like Dmitry Rogozin is now wearing a military uniform as well. And Strelkov is still taking pot shots at the MOD. He's still taking pot shots at some of the figures in the Ministry of Defense and how uh, Russia is doing the fighting. But um, Prigozhin and Rogozin uh, probably have a lot more influence in how Russia is going to fight than someone like Strelkov. So Strelkov still has influence, but um, their throwdown a few days ago has cooled off after some very choice words were exchanged between the two. So Strelkov can use his media and his use, he can use his influence like telegram channels to kind of discuss how Russia is or isn't fighting, but it is the people like Prigozhin and Rogozin that demonstrate their credibility by, by actually uh, fighting at the front or, or being present at the front. And this type of competition will likely continue as different figures are trying to kind of jockey for position as uh, it's not exactly clear whether Russia will or will not launch a major counteroffensive against Ukrainians or whether Ukrainians will launch one against the Russians. So we'll actually see how these figures uh, play out or how they will reposition themselves in the coming months. And, and just before we go, uh, Sam, you know, you said that the offensive hasn't started. For some, we're in the preliminary stages of it, that the Russians actually have started their uh, offensive. What do you think? I think it's hard to estimate this right now just by looking at public data that we have. Uh, I think we'll definitely know it when we see it. Sam, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us. And joining us now is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners for a look at the week and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, thanks so very much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Vago. Uh, indeed, same here. Um, another uh, great note, we had uh, earnings uh, and you, for a long time, have been complaining about uh, companies resorting to share buybacks uh, as being an unimaginative uh, use of capital from the company's perspective. We've got to do something with the cash because we can't do M&A. Um, walk us through your concerns about the activity you're seeing now and what do you think it means? Well, look, I get it. You, you know, in, in this day and age, if you're a public company, you can't just sit and let cash build <laughs> on your balance sheet. Um, you know, if you or your board don't decide to do something with it, there are activist investors who most certainly will try and decide and do something with it, you know, but, but I think it's just, uh, you know, it's kind of become the dominant uh, go-to for the largest of the defense primes in the United States. And I just observed that in 2022, uh, um, General Dynamics, Lockheed Martin, uh, Northrop Grumman, Raytheon Technologies, Elton Harris, they didn't buy as much stock as they did in 2021, but you know, both years were really record levels, kind of in the 14 and a half to 15 and a half billion level. Um, and that's just those <clears throat> the, the largest companies. Um, you know, I think I think it it raises a couple of issues. You know, it, first, <clears throat> is it really aren't there other uses of capital? 
you know, uh, I, I get it. This is this is money they've earned co under contracts. I mean, you know, companies are allowed to do what they want to do with with the capital that they've earned, the profits that they've earned from defense contracts. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just just kind of raises two questions, which is, well, you know, at the time, the Department of Defense has set up a kind of a strategic capital office. Um, you know, isn't there room for additional investment in other areas <clears throat> within the defense ecosystem or more broadly a national technology ecosystem. And the other point is the message it continues to send back to the DOD and to Congress, which is, you know, it becomes a little bit of a political lightning. You know, look, look at, you know, we're clamoring for more research and development funding. You know, we've got accelerated progress payments. And oh, by the way, here are these large companies, you know, turning around and buying stock, which doesn't benefit us. It, it may benefit us in a very obtuse way, but, um, and I could go into that in a second, Vago, but but I just think it's, um, I, I get it. It's kind of the way our system works. Um, but, you know, at a time when uh, DOD is certainly interested in promoting and, and frankly accelerating investment in the defense sector. You just have to ask, is this really the, the optimal use for the cash that these companies have? And some people believe it is. I'm much more agnostic on this. You know, if a shareholder tenders their stock, um, they get cash back. They can redirect that cash in other areas that would benefit U.S. national security. Frankly, it could go into some of these technology startups that are looking to compete with the large primes. We we don't always know exactly how that where how that money is redirected or reinvested, but it's not sitting, uh, you know, in CDs earning interest. I just want to briefly uh, ask you, um, you know, General Highnote was fascinating uh, at uh, the Defense Innovation Board last week, Air Force Lieutenant uh, General. Uh, but let me quickly ask you about Mercury Systems. Um, here's a very innovative company, absolutely integral uh, to the U.S. defense industrial base, especially at a time when there's a focus on microelectronics. Um, we, it appears an activist investor sort of you know, propelled the company to consider strategic approaches. We now have Advent, uh, a uh, private equity firm that's interested in acquiring it. Um, some concerns about, uh, at, you know, that some have about uh, uh, how the company uh, goes about doing what it does, uh, and and whether it creates or 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 not, uh, you know, or, or helps erode that value. From your perspective, what's the importance uh, of uh, the Mercury episode, given? the critical capability that company possesses? Well, it's just the continuing kind of hollowing out of that middle, middle tier of publicly traded companies. You know, um, private equity has been active in the sector. There's, again, nothing wrong with that. Although I do think when it comes to um, attracting people to some of these companies, you know, one of the most powerful things you can offer is equity, um, equity incentive compensation. And, um, you know, taking that away I think that now private equity can do it with phantom, you know, equity plans or whatever, but it, it's a little different than something that's quoted every day on a, uh, you know, Yahoo Finance or whatever, however people access their, their stock quotes these days. But I'm just, I just think it's, um, you know, it's going to be interesting to see who ends up buying them. They're, you know, not the same vertical integrations there were with Aerojet Rocketdyne, but, you know, part of Mercury's story kind of as long as I've known them was, oh, we're going to benefit. We're, we're, we're the company that's there to 
um, you know, offer alternatives <clears throat> to large contractors, they can outsource more of their microelectronic work to us. And so I think it'll probably be private equity or it may be, it may be someone that people haven't necessarily thought of um, as, as a company that, you know, wants to build out their defense presence. Um, I, I'd be surprised if Mercury gets picked up by one of the large primes. Um, but I think, you know, it, it'll, it'll find a home somewhere. It may well be private equity again. Um, and, and again, I mean, something uh, that is, is also interesting as uh, obviously the administration continues to evolve its uh, defense merger and acquisition uh, stance. Let's talk briefly about what General uh, Hynode had to say, and I want to get your thoughts on uh, the Chinese balloon uh, and uh, what it means. Obviously, a lot of debate and discussion. Yeah. Uh, I'm sort of on the record saying we should have shot this thing down right away. Uh, the Chinese and anybody else who's defending their airspace has a tendency of doing this kind of stuff quickly, uh, as opposed to letting it sort of meander across the country before uh, downing it. But walk us through uh, what General Hynode had to say, why it was so interesting, and then take us to uh, the balloon discussion. Well, you can go to the Defense Innovation Board website, or actually, I think it's up on YouTube, the uh, the public record of the meeting that they held last week. And uh, General Hynode speaks for 45 minutes into that meeting. But you no, know, he's what, the Jeopardy Chief of Staff for Air Force Futures. Um, he was very blunt about you know, where he saw um, innovation in the Department of Defense and the problem uh, of leadership of uh, what he called a huge disagreement over the timelines of risk uh, that, that are apparent in the Department of Defense, the, the, the fact that, you know, as far as he's concerned, we're kind of blessed and cursed with the defense um, primes we have. You know, they, they do build world-class products and, you uh, you know, but at the same time, they're not always uh, a, pr a proponent for innovation, particularly innovation that might degrade or take away from the profits on some of the mature programs that they have or the sustainment work that they do. So it was a very candid discussion and I think worthwhile um, to hear from him because I think it also raises the question about, and I felt this, that I don't, and he said it, the, the problem is not so much the, the access the DOD has to innovation. It's the adoption of that innovation. It gets back to a theme that I've talked about for a while, Vago. It's like, if DOD really wants to, you know, create a more innovative defense sector, they're going to have to create new uh, winners in this. And, and I think that could really shake up. It, it could frankly change some of the share buyback behavior that we <laughs> saw if, if uh, you know, shareholders kind of wonder, well, why aren't you able to grow uh, company A that's buying back all your stock when company B seems to be growing at a much faster rate? Are you are you investing in this business uh, at the level you need to? So it's just an intriguing um, issue. And I think to, I, th I just I commend everybody, you know, to, to listen to his his <clears throat> observations on this. Uh, one of uh, the most uh, thoughtful uh, folks uh, wearing uh, a military uniform. Um, quickly, the Chinese balloon and how we should be thinking about it. Um, look, the, the two bigger questions besides the immediate drama of you know what happened over the last couple of days are, well, first, how does it change the defense spending debate in the United States? I think it, it makes it even less likely <clears throat> that we're going to see defense taken hostage and cut. Um, and it, it may even degrade some of the, the broader plans to cut 
uh, def, you know, discretionary spending because defense is going to be linked to that. I, I just don't see any any daylight where the Democrats are going to separate the two. Um, you know, when, when you have a balloon over your head, it kind of sharpens, uh, <clears throat> you know, your concern, your personal concern about defense. I'm talking about American citizens now. It's it's a little less abstract than uh, Taiwan and the Taiwan Strait. Um, so to be determined, but I think it's probably at the margin a positive for uh, for the outlook for U.S. defense spending. Well, a lot of bridges to cross here. Um, and then the second point is just, so what does it mean from a technology standpoint? I mean, I, I kind of, you know, tongue-in-cheek wrote about a balloon gap, but you know, there are some pretty sound uh, technical reasons uh, why you would want to have these types of surveillance balloons as opposed to satellites or high-altitude aircraft. And if China has a pretty extensive program, you know, is that is that a business opportunity for U.S. or, or other countries to consider pursuing? It, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. There may already be stuff going on from a classified standpoint, but I just think it's kind of intriguing, uh, you know, when looking at some of the, the attributes of these um, and how they might be more responsive, lower cost, um, you know, it, it could be a, a little intriguing niche that develops in the defense sector. Uh, and uh, we've got about 30 uh, seconds left. Uh, walk us through uh, the big events of the week that the audience ought to be paying attention to. House Armed Services Committee gets into gear. They're having a couple of hearings, one on the state of the defense industrial base, uh, General Rainey, Army Futures Command, is speaking at the Association of the U.S. Army uh, this week. Uh, there's an FAA and Commercial Sp Space Flight Federation event on commercial space transportation. That takes place on the 8th through the 9th. Um, you know, relevant to defense, certainly what's happening in space, as we've just discussed with the balloon, uh, it does matter for, for the defense sector. And there are a bunch of other House uh, Armed Services Committee, other hearings, think tank events on, on kind of the different aspects of this competition with China. Finally, um, State of the Union address. I mean, historically, it's been a non-event for defense. And much as I'll listen to what the president has to say, I doubt I'm going to wake up the day after with with a radically different view on uh, on the outlook for U.S. defense spending. Byron, thanks very much. It's always a pleasure having you on the program. Appreciate it. Have a great week and see you next week. Thank you, Vago. Cheers.